is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Brian Ping, and this week for Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. Monkeypox is now being called a public health emergency by the federal government, California. And a few other states already did the same, so we'll go in-depth into what this means and if the tools are there to prevent the virus from spreading as fast as COVID. And China fires off missiles in the Taiwan Strait to show its anger over Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Governor Newsom says if Hollywood studios are serious about their liberal values, they'll stop filming in conservative states. But will they listen to him or their wallets? We go in depth. DDT dumping in the ocean off Catalina Island might be far worse than what scientists initially believed. And you know the Beach Boys, icons of Southern California rock and roll. We talked to lead singer Mike Love later in the show as the group will be performing in L.A. this weekend. But we start with monkeypox and the federal government's response. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner is back with us. He's an epidemiologist, clinical professor of preventative medicine at USC's Keck School of Medicine. So, doctor, uh, so the U.S. government is going to call it, is calling monkeypox now a national emergency, health emergency. Uh, Do we really have the tools, though, to put some teeth into that? Well, the health emergency uh, declaration means that it opens up some, um, you know, new opportunities to move things uh, faster. Uh, What people have been concerned about is the lack of available uh, vaccine and also the lack of available uh, testing resource in many places. So with uh, emergency declaration, contracts can be executed uh, faster. People can be hired a lot more quickly and enables the government to respond more effectively. Is this going to divert resources away from COVID? No, I don't think so. I mean, we're in a, you know, different phase of COVID right now. We're, you know, in this phase of learning uh, how to live with it. Uh, we've actually called for a combination of COVID and monkeypox testing sites in places uh, where uh, the two infections may be overlapping the population, such as uh, urban areas around the country. Do you see a time in the foreseeable future when the general population will need to give serious consideration to getting vaccinated for monkeypox? Um, actually, I do not see that monkeypox uh, will become a threat to the general population. Uh, right now, monkeypox is highly concentrated in men who have sex with men with multiple partners. In fact, I was just reviewing the epi curves, the number of new cases over time in uh, Europe and in England and in uh, Montreal and even in New York City. And it looks like cases are starting to trend downward. And and that suggests that we've had a very concentrated epidemic that's not going to spread more broadly. That being said, do you think the federal government was slow to react here? Well, I mean, the federal government was uh, slow to call the emergency uh, response. A few days ago, they did identify uh, their, you know, monkeypox czar is a very well-respected physician from the CDC and also a very uh, uh, well-respected expert in logistics. Uh, but, you know, as the federal, as the feds will say, you know, public health happens at the local level. So fortunately, there has been an excellent response from L.A. County, Orange County, local health departments, San Francisco health departments. And in places where there have been monkeypox cases, they've been working hand in hand with community based organizations really to get the information education, to get vaccines out, to get treatment uh, where people need it, and also importantly, to promote behavior change so that people can reduce their exposure to the virus. 
I know in the early days of the uh, COVID pandemic, a lot of people criticized the federal government, rightly so, uh, for being slow out of the starting gate. And a lot of people at the federal level said, well, we're going to learn our lessons for the next uh, potential pandemic. Well, is our experience with monkeypox showing that the government has learned lessons? Well, I think, you know, it's unlikely to become a pandemic. A pandemic means that, you know, it's uh, at risk and it's spreading in the general population. So this is, you know, spread similarly to the way syphilis is spread. Syphilis affects, you know, certain populations that are uh, put at risk. We don't really consider uh, syphilis to be pandemic, but the federal government did respond, um, you know, urgently um, in, in a way that uh, shows that they took this situation seriously, and they're putting resources and their best foot forward. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, epidemiologist and clinical professor of preventative medicine at USC Keck School of Medicine. Doctor, thank you. Right now, Brittany Greiner has been sentenced in Russia to more than nine years in prison for drug possession and smuggling. This comes after the U.S. proposed a prisoner swap with Russia to try to get her back home. Juscelino Kolaris is an international law expert and co-director of the Frederick Cox International Law Center at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Thanks for being with us. So is this basically the the sort of opening uh, <laughs> the opening hand in what is likely to be a protracted game of, of very high stakes chess? Mixing, so. mixing my metaphors here, but go ahead. It's, it seems so, uh, Brian, uh, and I, I, it's really uh, a sad story for Ms. Greiner here because in most legal systems in the world, you know, you have uh, a defendant pleading guilty and apologizing profu- profusely before the court and showing, you know, regret. And uh, uh, in the prosecution, neither the prosecution here nor the judge showed any leniency. The defendants typically get some some kind of leniency, even in the in 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 systems like Russia. I'm not a, a, an expert on Russia criminal procedure, but this, uh, I believe, the, the the judge sentencing her to uh, at least a nine years in, in prison is a, is a very long sentence for something that. Uh, obviously is uh, uh was unlawful activity and all Americans should know that when they travel abroad they have to comply with the laws of the country and, sp- and pleading uh uh lack of knowledge or lack of aware- awareness of foreign law of the country's law is no defense but still this is incredibly harsh the fact that there has been a sentencing though would that have to be considered at least a small step forward because in order to have a prisoner exchange you've got to have a prisoner Yes, but she was already uh, in custody. So uh, technically, the, you have a prisoner awaiting trial. What uh, the the prison sentence gives is more leverage to uh, the Russian diplomats and Putin uh, in terms of uh, negotiating perhaps a higher price. And I think the administration, again, jumped the gun uh, by publicly trying to negotiate uh, early already with uh, uh, an, an exchange with uh, a, a Russian arms dealer, when the, all that does, uh, in my view, is to uh, let the Russians know that that's our starting price. So now that price has gone up. So do we do something now to up the ante? And what would we do? Well, we can uh, continue, I mean, making representations uh, before the Russians. And uh, we they said that they didn't want to negotiate because 
they want to uh, uh, ensure that they have at least to the to the left of, of the world, they want to appear they have a semblance of an independent judiciary, uh, which uh, I mean, it's a I don't think that passes the left test. But uh, so now that that phase is over, now there is probably going to be appetite to see what the United States uh, has to offer. And I think it was very unfortunate, again, that the administrator began by offering names publicly, and they shouldn't have done that. And also another problem is that they shouldn't have said in any way that she, that uh, Ms. Greiner, who has pled, who pled guilty uh, before trial, was being held uh, unlawfully. I mean, that's, that's absurd. And uh, you lose your credibility uh, right then and there when you make, you know, overbroad statements. Of course, uh, uh, the United States should be doing something, but it should not say should be doing something behind uh, uh, the public view. Like what? Perhaps maybe lessening support for Ukraine? Uh, no, absolutely not. That's not uh, that's uh, that's no way going to be on the table. I can't even, I can't fathom any U.S. administration ever doing anything of that kind. But now, uh, since the, the Russians were at least uh, uh, nominally making the argument that we have to wait for a trial to see, uh, uh, you know, what the what the, the penalty is so we can then gauge what is your, you, you, United States, is prepared to offer from the other side in terms of uh, time served and value of the prisoner. So now I think that, that they can start the conversation. Okay, that's Juscelino Calaris, international law expert and co-director of the Frederick Cox International Law Center at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Juscelino, thank you. Coming up, DDT pollution looks to be a bigger problem off Catalina Island than what scientists thought, and everyone knows the Beach Boys. They're touring again and are in Los Angeles this weekend. We will talk with lead singer Mike Love about the band's decades-long success. Right now, China has responded to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. The country performed military exercises in the Taiwan Strait, conducting precision missile strikes. Ian Johnson is a senior fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. And Ian, are we made to believe these are precision strikes, or from what our vantage point, it's just rockets into the ocean here? Yeah, well, that's really hard to say. China likes to tout its military modernization. It has these military parades where it shows its missiles and stuff like that. It's very hard to tell exactly the capabilities of China's military. They haven't fought a war since they were basically defeated by Vietnam in 1979. So what exactly they're able to do is not clear, but it is clear that they've conducted these exercises in a wider area than they have in the past. And it shows that they can uh, conduct exercises all around the island of Taiwan. So that that is some something significant. So is the thinking, though, that this is sort of it? Uh, you know, Pelosi goes, uh, she defies the wishes of the Chinese. They show now that they are clearly upset by their uh, actions. And does everything now kind of go back to, and I'm going to put in, in quotes, normal? I mean, that's, I think, the hope um, that this was it. They they had, they made their point. But I wouldn't be surprised to see them continue to ratchet up pressure in other areas, for example, more flyovers into Taiwanese airspace, maybe firing more rockets around Taiwan, um, other economic pressure, maybe some more cyber attacks. 
I, I feel I don't think they want to let this spin out of control, but I think they want to show that this might have been okay 25 years ago um, when Newt Gingrich went, when he was Speaker of the House, but it's not acceptable now. And, and, and it's not just aimed at Americans. I think they want to tell other countries around the world, don't treat Taiwan like a country. It is a pariah state. We will insist on that. And uh, I think I think that's their, their sort of bigger message that they want to make clear. So then how, do, how does the Biden administration react to all this? Because they didn't really want uh, Ms. Pelosi to go in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think the best thing is just to make sure that this just is a display. Um, obviously, if they are, if these exercises inc- increase and there's some sort of a blockade of Taiwan, Taiwan's a big trading nation, lots of ships coming and going out of its huge ports. If there's any disruption to that, uh, then I think it would require some kind of U.S. Uh, response or if there's really an effort to take down digital infrastructure in Taiwan, you know, serious cyber attacks. I think they went after the presidential website a few days ago. That's not such a big deal. But then I think there would be some some need for a response. I think other, otherwise, the best thing is for the United States and other countries just to stand back, let China have its say, um, or if you want to be uncharitable, it's hissy fit. Let them have that. and then. And then move on to more concrete things that would actually help Taiwan going forward. Like what? Well, I think we need to help Taiwan modernize its military. There are lessons from Ukraine that we can use. We should discourage the military in Taiwan, which like militaries around the world, they want big ticket, sexy items. They want to buy advanced fighter airplanes. They want to buy Abrams tanks and all these things, which are pretty useless in fighting China. I think we need to encourage them to think about asymmetrical warfare. And there are many people in Taiwan who want to do that also. I just think we just need to encourage them, give them the advice, share what we're learning in Ukraine, and then sell them that equipment that will help them defend themselves more effectively. That's going to deter China more than people just going and making visits. China's had its eyes from day one on the invasion of Ukraine and taking notes. And has this altered their stance at all as far as any designs they may have on Taiwan. It's 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 different in this case because you got to cross a large body of water. That's a huge logistical challenge. You think about what Russia is facing. Yeah, no, for sure. I think one thing China does well is it studies these things and it draws lessons. They're going to see how Russia, a country that I think they thought was had a quite advanced military, they bought hardware from Russia up until recently, they're going to be surprised, as I think a lot of people were around the world, at how poorly the Russian military has fared. And I, I think they'll, they'll draw lessons from that. And, and the sensible conclusion would be is if you want to invade Taiwan, you should wait because China's not there yet. But you never know what exactly countries are thinking. It wasn't sensible really for Putin to invade Ukraine, but he did it. So I, I think we should probably assume that they're going to step back and and study that um, and and probably not take action right away. Ian Johnson, Senior Fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Ian, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. Brian Ping in from Ike Simpson today. I'm Charles Feldman. Hollywood studios have spread out production over the years across the country. It's common now for TV shows to film in places like Georgia. Governor Newsom, though, says they should come home and adhere to liberal values by stopping production in conservative states. 
This comes as state lawmakers are looking to extend a film tax credit. Can the governor appeal to Hollywood's political side, or does money trump everything? Catherine Arnold is an entertainment consultant. She's also a film producer and executive. Catherine, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So, you know, at the end of the day, money speaks, right? Uh, And is there anything that the governor is saying that is going to convince Hollywood Studios to bring it all home to California, which is, you know, even with tax credits, a lot more expensive a place to to shoot uh, motion pictures than a lot of other parts of the country? Absolutely. So there's a lot of things going on here. We have a huge talent pool here in Los Angeles. The top crews are basically based out of here. So there is an incentive to bring production back here, not only for tax revenues, but also to actually keep the working pool of Hollywood talent working, right? So the economics of what Governor Newsom is trying to put forward is trying to compete with the states that have had long-term and very successful tax incentive programs. So by continuing California's tax incentive program, it may at least begin a conversation to have more productions come back or stay here so they can utilize the talent pool here. So I don't think it's like a wholesale answer for the entire production community in the the United States, but certainly a, a good segment of it. Is appealing to liberal values in California really going to get them far? Because in Georgia in particular, that's a highly cited example because you know, so much of the film industry has moved there. That is growing more purple you know, by the day. They just elected two Democratic U.S. senators. So does that even wash? You know, I don't know. It's so new to understand how the, the Roe versus Wade and the abortion laws, as they're changing across the country, how they're going to impact each state and whether they're going to last or not. But I know that California, not only from the studio heads, many of the production heads, but also a lot of the talent is quite liberal. So there's going to be two decision makers. There's going to be the large studios that are incentivized by the bottom line and their profits because they're large corporations. Then you have the more liberal talent, the actors, writers, directors, and producers, who if they have enough weight, if they're a big enough name, they can actually have more impact on their shows and move them to a state that that uh, assimilates with their values. Can you think of an analogous situation where there was a call for movie companies to not uh, produce in certain states because of philosophical or political reasons? I'm trying to think, aside from the abortion law, uh, which seems to be the you know the hot trigger point for most people. Uh, you know, we have the gay rights law that they talked about that that Florida was dealing with, and the studios got in a lot of trouble because they didn't act upon that. These are these hotbed emotional issues that have the country somewhat divided, right? So those are the two foremost ones that I know of um, that have impacted Hollywood more than anything else. And, so, and sometimes uh, you know, these stories tend to fade because Georgia had been in the headlines with the voting rights law and you know, people had threatened to pull out because of that. But then that sort of uh, you know, faded into the background of these stories. Now, as serious as they are, you know, it's not going to be a thing that people talk about you know, necessarily months down the road. And uh, so you think then that that uh, pressure campaign from California is going to lose some of its punch? It's hard to tell. I mean, again, really, it's a, it's a conversation between economics and the toll on human lives. Because if, if the, in the entire movie industry, let's say, pulled out of Georgia, for instance, or Louisiana, there are a large number of talent pools in those states as well who survive on entertainment production, right? So we're not just impacting what the legislature has to say in a given state. We also have to understand how that's impacting the lives of 
people that have uprooted from California, moved to Georgia, been there for 10 years or been in Louisiana or the Carolinas and, and have livelihoods there and families. So I think there's going to be a competition. Um, I, I think it's going to be an ongoing conversation, but I think, uh, you know, time will tell. I, I really can't say, you know, you're right. Things do fade away, but then they come back. So it depends on uh, what producers you're working with and what studios and how important the uh, these laws are impacting them on an emotional and a philosophical level. That's Catherine Arnold, entertainment consultant and a film producer and executive. Catherine, thank you. Well, if you like the Beach Boys, don't go anywhere because in a, just a little short amount of time, we're going to talk to Beach Boys lead singer Mike Love as the group is touring again and performing right here in L.A. Right now, though, DDT waste was apparently dumped into the ocean near Catalina Island decades ago. The EPA has recently found out the toxic pollution could be far worse than what scientists imagined. With us to explain is John Chestnut, Superfund and Emergency Management Division Manager with the EPA, and he's been leading the uh, Bureau's technical team on this investigation. So, John, thanks for joining us. And uh, just how bad is it? Yeah, thanks for having me on your show. It's important for the public to get a better understanding of this important environmental issue. Um, well, you know, there's what's 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 really I think that is, you know, is alarming to the community <clears throat> Is, is the fact that these dump sites are out there and, and, you know, the fact that the, the environmental ethic in the day that, that, that made regulators and things think that it was okay to dump in the ocean. These dump sites that are out there that were sort of, um, brought to public's attention through the LA Times in October 2020, actually, you know, showed that there was not just one dump site out there between Catalina and, and the mainland, but there's actually 14 dump sites throughout the Southern California bite, we call it, from Santa Barbara, basically down to the Mexican border. Um, the one that's drawing attention in particular is this one halfway between Catalina and, and the mainland because of the, because uniquely of the, of what we believe is where some of the DDT contamination has gone. So the, the regulatory community and a lot of the scientific community has known about many of these dump sites really for years from the thirties through the seventies when it stopped. So, uh, what has brought it more to our attention and and our ability to address it more effectively these days is the fact that we we actually have technology now that can allow us to get down at these depths and start looking into it. What does it mean for people who want to swim in those waters, fish in those waters? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, the the EPA in particular has been been working on 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 the more d- near shore DDT contamination issues associated with these releases from the Montrose chemical plant where the DDT was produced. We've been working on that since the 90s on the near shore areas along Palos Verdes Shelf. We have a number of series of of years of sampling for fish and water um, to one show that that in the shallow zones of these areas, we we do find that the that the levels of in in the water is safe for recreational um, purposes, whether that's it's surfing or or diving. So that's that's the good news. The contamination that we're focusing on now, um, which is seems more alarming again because the quantities that are showing up in these reports and all are at three thousand feet depth, um, which are which are you know generally inaccessible to to people. And 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 even mammals and other things, you know, it's pretty deep, but we're trying to really look into to what degree those contaminants that are likely on the ocean floor can make their way through the food web.
Yeah, and this dumping happened decades ago. The pollutants are still there after all those years. They didn't just float away or you know, decompose naturally. Well, that's why we talk about DDT a lot, and because there are certain certain categories of pollutants that are just very persistent and they don't degrade and they stick in the environment, you know, for years. And DDT is just one of those contaminants. <clears throat> There, what we're finding is in these dump sites, there's some general documentation from the uh, good report from the 70s that talks about the types of waste. And it's ranging from chemical to munitions to radioactive waste. There's just a lot of things and, and, and lots of petroleum drilling waste. But of that suite, um, DDT is, is more persistent. It gets in the food web. You're seeing lots of reports about it, it, it its persistence and its occurrence in marine mammals, whether it's sea lions, dolphins and the like. Um, it gets stored up in their fatty tissues. And so, you know, some of these, some of these, these mammals and other species have longer lives. And so it's accumulates and, and, and also bio accumulates as it goes through the food chain. The fish get it, mammals eat it, and it goes up and then humans could eat fish. I'm curious if there are other uh, dangerous things that are being dumped into those waters that, you know, 10, 20 years from now, are we going to first find out about those? Well, that's a good question. Again, this dumping was in the 30s through the early 70s. And, you know, again, we had a more environmental ethic coming. The environment became the forefront of all of our minds in the 70s, more or less, with the with the start of uh, not only just the EPA, but a lot of other regulations. And the Ocean Dumping Act, as we generally call it, came into effect in 1972. And that really put an end nationally to to this type of dumping. Um, and you know, it doesn't mean that things don't run off and things like that from businesses, but there's also hopefully regulatory programs that put that curb those types of releases as well. So we'd like to think through current regulations all we're, we're doing our best to curb anything like this from happening in the future, particularly at this scale. This is just unprecedented to think that this happened, right? I mean, to any of us. That's John Chestnut, Superfund and Emergency Management Division Manager with the EPA, and he's been leading the EPA's technical team on this investigation. John, thanks for joining us. When you think of Southern California, what's among the first things that come to mind? We're guessing it's probably the beach. And when you think of the beach, you think surfing and then maybe music. Yeah, and at that point, you can't help but have a Beach Boys tune in your head. Mm -hmm. Surfing USA, I got to get around, catch a wave. We, we could go on and on and on. The Beach Boys are rock and roll icons performing for decades now. They're back in L.A. Sunday performing at the Greek Theater. Then they'll be at the Ventura County Fair Monday with us now. One of the original Beach Boys lead singer, Mike Love. Mike, thank you very much. Pleasure to have you on the show. Well, it's a pleasure to be on the program. Thank you for having me. So let me ask you this. Uh, you know, we all have songs that, you know, when we're driving along and we hear them on the, on the radio, we'll, we'll turn them up. But when it comes to Beach Boy songs, I, I think I can't think of one that I don't turn up. Do you know what it is about your songs that has that effect on, I think, many, many people? Well, you know, I think the harmonies have a lot to do with it because we became obsessed with the harmonies way back when, with the combination of the doo-wop of the four freshmen and the Everly Brothers. It all combined to, to, to inspire us to sound uh, sound so good, you know? Um, and, and, and that's harmonies is a, is a component with most of our songs. I think that has a lot to do with it. 
Yeah, especially the early era uh, Beach Boys songs that uh, that you created definitely had that that Chuck Berry spirit. Of, you know, talking about girls and fun and youth and just being out there. And you know, it's it yeah, it's just uh, stuff that people love to listen to. That's right, and and they're still listening, which is an amazing yeah. thing. We just got back from Europe, and we were in uh, Royal Albert Hall, and which is like an iconic place there, and a beautiful concert. We, we were in Sweden, we were in Germany, we were in Lisbon, uh, we were in Barcelona, Paris. It, it was it, it's fascinating all over the world the Beach Boys music. I think we, we also resem- we represented California, but in, in a greater sense America, and all over the world um, our music has been heard, which is wonderful. I mean, do you ever get? Now, be honest. Do you ever get tired of it? I mean, you've been doing this for decades, right? With these songs, and as much as the audience wants to hear it, are there ever nights when you're you're on stage going, "If I have to do one more, one more, you know, uh, surf in USA"? <laughs> no, I, I. You know, we're so um, fortunate to have these songs to sing, and and every night they're a little tricky because they've got some uh, harmonies and chord progressions on them. So they keep you alert. You have to be on your game to 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 do them properly, and uh, so it's a l- little bit of a challenge, and and that's good. It keeps you engaged and focused and everything like that. But no, we, these songs create so much positivity and happiness in the audience that I just love it. Uh, I love to see multiple generations coming out coming out to their shows and grandparents, parents, and, 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 and teens and all that, and, and even younger love the music, the music. With any band that's been around as long as the Beach Boys have, you're going to have some turnover, and yet you keep going out there and rocking. What's the secret to your longevity? Well, um, I think, you know, there's lifestyle choices that people make. Uh, some people smoke a bit too much. Some people drink a bit too much or taking drugs and stuff. But I learned to meditate, transcendental meditation, from Maharishi in December of 67. And I continue to meditate every day. Every day I do it, and it helps me uh, get get more energy and clarity and and uh, keep on the positive side, not succumb to n- too much negativity. You know, I've asked this of, of, of other uh, musicians, and I'll ask it of you as well. When, when the songs were being written... Do you get a sense as you're you're writing it that oh this is going to be a, a, just an absolute hit? Do you know it in your bones, or are are you as surprised as sometimes the people are of which ones hit and which ones don't? Well, you know, when you're engaged in writing a song, you're always trying to make it the best you can be. I think that's common to all of us, but um, it, once in a while you get an idea that there's there's it's going to be a a pretty good one. Uh, when we did Kokomo, uh, which was uh, number one in 19... Well, it was... Yeah, it was 88. Uh, um, the uh, producer of the Cocktail soundtrack, the movie Cocktail, Tom Cruise movie, um, they asked us for a, a song. And when he heard it, he said, this is the best song you've had since Good Vibrations. Hmm. <laughs> huh. We didn't really... L- you have any frame of reference we were just asked if we would do a song for them and it turned out to to go to number one and it's probably the biggest sing-along in our show you know uh mike when people hear a beach boys song on their on the radio 
you know, obviously it sounds a certain way, and, it, and they're produced incredibly well. Is it a challenge to create that same sound in a live performance? Because I, I would imagine the audience has a certain expectation, right, that it's going to sound a certain way. Absolutely, and we are obsessed with replicating the songs as close to as humanly possible to uh, what we recorded. Mike, there's been a complicated history that you've had with some former members of the band as far as you know, songwriting credit in particular with Brian Wilson. What's the relationship with between you two right now, if there is one? And do you think that you've recovered at least some of the credit that you feel that you've deserved? Because when some people think of the Beach Boys, they do think of Brian Wilson. And uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, Brian and I were the closest buddies on earth for many years. Uh, but my uncle administered the publishing, and he, he neglected to put my name on songs like Help Me Rhonda, California Girls, I Get Around. Uh, so um, I, you know, Brian was in a conservatorship because he had some issues, you know, mental issues and stuff. And so I had to go to court to uh, and had to overcome that. And it was, was not pleasant, wasn't fun. Yeah, but uh, um, restitution was made, and so that's been many years now. It's been well, over 20 years, and so um, yeah, um, that that was a, that was a problem. But if it's just Brian and I, we we we're like peas in a pod. We get along great. You know, I, I remember seeing an interview oh, a few years ago with Mick Jagger. It was, Jagger, it was a, a an old interview he did when he was probably 25 or 26 where he was saying that he never thought you know that he would be you know, if the rolling stones existed i think he said in a few more years he would have been amazed well here he is right uh when when you guys were first recording and performing in the early 60s i mean did you ever really think that here we are 2022 and you'd still be at it not really we didn't look at it that way we we're just uh engaged in um you know getting songs recorded so we could give Capitol Records another album, you know. In fact, we were, uh, they kept us busy. Um, we had an album, Pet Sounds, come out in 1966, which yeah. was regarded as one of the greater albums. Uh, but we needed time to finish it, so we did a party album. On that album was Barbara Ann, which became a big hit for us. We we never even envisioned that would be a big hit. So no, we didn't look at it, at it being a lifetime uh, pursuit or a lifetime profession. But we're we're blessed because it's a family hobby, getting together and singing and harmonizing together, that became a profession on the basis of what my cousin Brian and I did together. So uh, what can we expect uh, when we go out to the show? Basically, you saw all of our favorite hits, maybe some surprises. John Stamos is going to be there, from what I understand. John Stamos is going to be there. Mark McGrath is going to fall by. We'll back him up on a, one of his songs. Um, it's going to be very fun, very special at, uh, uh, at the Greek. And, of course, up in Ventura, the county fair, that's going to be a, a big show. Anyway, uh, yeah, we're going to do everything from from surf and safari to Kokomo and all things in between, and and some things on either side that we that that might be a surprise. Uh, we're doing the Ramones, Rockaway Beach. We're doing, you know, we're doing a bunch of stuff that from all the years that we've done music, all the albums we're doing. We have a an album called uh, Sixty Years of the Sounds of Summer, which features the Sounds of Summer, the original. LP, which um, had 30 songs on one one LP, one CD. 
And so we're doing all kinds of songs from that. So you're like, you're what, 81 now, Mike? Yes. 81. So at what point do you guys become the beach men? <laughs> yeah, or just drop the boys. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Uh well, you know, we're we're the the elder statesmen of uh, of uh, surf music, I guess. <laughs> Very cool. Uh you know, over the years you've had to incorporate new members and and you own the Beach Boys trademark the name, so you wouldn't admit new members if they didn't live up to the the, the very high standards that you set back in the original days. So is it a very difficult process just to, first of all identifying people who will who will come in and and recreate that sound and then for them actually doing it? Well, yeah, I mean, the, 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 some of the songs get a little complicated, so you you have to have um, a, a lot of uh, artistic uh, acumen, talent, to to um, to do what we did in our original recordings. And so we lost Dennis, we lost Carl, you know, and and uh, those are really, you know, you know, terrible things to happen to to family members. Um, but but because it is music and if a person can sing those notes properly like my my son Christian uh who's a California boy um he sings godly notes which was originally sung by uh Carl Wilson and he sings it beautifully and and so uh, we're very lucky to have a, a great group of guys who are committed to music and committed to doing the best we possibly can every night do you have a favorite Beach Boys song? Well, Good Vibrations is right up there. But there's a lesser-known song called The Warmth of the Sun, which is a beautiful ballad we did many, many years ago. Uh, and uh, we'll do it again at, at, at the Greek. All right, we can't wait for it. That's Mike Love, lead singer of the Beach Boys. They're performing at the Greek Theater on Sunday night and then at the Ventura County Fair on Monday night. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Have a great show. Oh, I appreciate for helping us uh, get the word out. Thank of, you very much. Of course, uh, rock and roll icon. And, uh, you know, Southern California in the summer, that, that nice breeze in the evening, and you go out and you listen to that music, you can't really think of the Beach Boys music, you can't really think of anything that's and it always works. essentially something. It yeah, does. It, it always Decades later, and it still it still works. Put you in that frame so, of mind, like that. Yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> that, that surf rock and then the Beach Boys in particular. Okay, this has been Can't. But do that again. Maybe maybe Mike can invite you in the group. What are you doing for the Greek theater? I'll clear my schedule. This has been KNX in depth. If I'm not back in a couple days, you'll know why. We'll be back. We will be back tomorrow.